Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. Uh, today we are uh, going back to our kind of quarterly insight review. Um, and um, so for those of you who are new to this podcast, uh, we have on the EFG website, the quarterly insight, which you can download. And the idea is that you can follow the insights with a deeper discussion around sort of the key points, the key narratives within the insight. Uh, and you can also access this podcast actually through the insight document itself by just clicking the link and it will take you straight to the podcast. So um, um, the, the sort of Q4 2023 insight we've called Shifting Sands. Um, I'm actually in Dubai doing this podcast today and <laughs> it's a very appropriate um, analogy. Uh, but maybe um, just to sort of introduce the A-team of macro, uh, Paul Templeton, who, uh, who's outside of EFG, but uh, uh, basically inside of EFG in terms of uh, his input into some of the macro discussions. Um, we have uh, Stefan Gerlach, the Chief Economist for EFG. We have Dan Murray, the Deputy CIO and Head of Research for EFG. We have Gianluigi Manrosato, of um, who's our a senior economist in Europe, and we have Joaquin and Sam, also economists within the team. So we'll cover the globe uh, through this insight, um, and we hope you enjoyed. And of course, as ever, please give us feedback uh, when uh, after you've been through it. So maybe Paul, we'll start with the uh, overview. So those following on the document is page two. Um, maybe Paul, start with you on the on the overview. What are sort of the key thoughts? we had introducing Q4 2023? Well, we called it Shifting Sands, and there are several aspects of Shifting Sands, but what we start off on is the Shifting Sands of global growth. So global growth is going to be a bit lower than um, pre-pandemic in the, in, the, in the years ahead. But importantly, growth has surprised us in many ways this year, and that looks set to continue. So most notably, US growth is much stronger than anyone expected this year. We've had other areas that have been strong as well, like Brazil, for example. And India is now expected to be one of the strongest growing economies for the next five years or so. China's been weak, whereas people thought there might be a post-COVID surge in Chinese uh, growth. And also in the in the sectors, I mean, it takes me back to a discussion when I was at Merrill Lynch in the 80s and 90s. We used to have a joke. It's sort of whenever America had a big trade deficit. OK, what could America export? Cars. Ha! What a joke! America exporting cars. Now, of course, America is the leader in, well, just about the leader in EV production and so on. Um, in the 1970s, we had the the oil crisis in the West. But, of course, it was a boom for where you are, Mose, in Dubai and the Gulf region. So, I mean, these are the sort of shifting sands I'm, I was thinking about. The pattern is sort of changing. Uh, we've been used looking ahead to... Um, China being the main driver of global growth, but increasingly India looks as though it can take on that role. And starting at a very, very low level of per capita income. So starting position is, you know, gives it an advantage in the sense there's more ability to sort of grow. So that was the idea of shifting sands on global growth. And indeed, um, I guess given the market moves we've seen over the last few, few weeks, particularly in um, uh, fixed income markets, where there's a sudden recognition that economic growth is a little bit stronger and and uh, maybe the Fed needs to stay higher for longer. 
think it's a little bit more deeper than that in terms of um, uh, markets normalizing to a post-GFC uh, reality um, where kind of fiscal deficits and uh, and risk premia in government bonds has now started to turn positive uh, and um, real yields are also going back to kind of normal. Uh, so, so maybe, Daniel, do you want to sort of uh, sort of bring into light some of the key developments within the fixed income markets and uh, return of real yields. Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. I think we've become conditioned over the past 15 years to government bond yields being very low and negative real interest rates. But of course, that's a very unusual set of circumstances in practice. And I think, you know, one way to view recent moves in bond markets is just as the sort of post GSC normalization. And I think critical to that is the issue over where the Fed ends up when the dust settles. So clearly, we, you know, we've come through a period of increased volatility, um, and I think you know, the question is where do we settle? The Fed itself has long-term estimates at about two and a half percent, but um, I think the reality is that if um, uh, you know, if inflation settles at sort of two percent, and uh, if the real short-end interest rate is more like 1%, then actually uh, the, the Fed funds rate is likely to settle a little bit higher than 3%. So a very interesting uh, uh, market to watch at the moment. The other feature, I guess, um, and this is kind of moving on to kind of page three of the insight, we have a very interesting chart of Fed funds rate and equity market volatility. And equity market volatility has obviously been very subdued and just note the the note that uh, Sam were uh, recently uh, published, uh, but I guess the volatility shifted from equities to fixed income, where we've seen unprecedented volatility. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, Daniel, you and I, and Paul and others, uh, Stefan and Jelly's go back a very long way. Some of the day-to-day moves we see today are just startling in the historical context. Yes, yeah, fascinating markets at the moment. I mean, for you know, for most of our careers, we've seen this sort of steady decline in fixed income volatility, and it's been much lower historically than equity markets. But obviously, for most of the last couple of years, it's been very elevated and and, uh, and uh, often above equity markets. So, a very unusual set of circumstances, um, and I'm sure it's all related to this fact that you know markets have become numbed to the possibility that rates would rise, and then when they did rise, it's you know it's quite a big shock. So, um, uh, you know, again, I'm sure we'll settle down at some point, but I think a key part of uh, settling down will be once the market reaches consensus and it becomes much clearer where the Fed is going to land when all this is over. And certainly, uh, we've got a very interesting chart just looking at sort of peak Fed funds and subsequent returns in the even sort of relatively short-dated um, bond yields, and uh, they certainly do look attractive from a um, kind of historical perspective, uh, given where we are in the economic cycle. Um, the, the the equity market volatility chart is, is of course, absolutely fascinating. Um, I guess volatility on the upside is also diminished and it's quite dramatically. Um, but anyway, it is quite interesting. I suspect as we go into 2024 and beyond, um, maybe the other shifting sand could be bond vol going to equity vol bold at some point, uh, which um, which is uh, something that we uh, we haven't seen certainly for the next sort of uh, last two or three years. 
Yeah, uh, I think. I mean, I think it, you know the key uh, feature to watch here is just the timing of any Fed rate cut. I think the markets at the moment are pricing in the Fed staying higher for longer, which is something the Fed has signalled. But that would be unusual. The Fed normally, um, you know, once it cuts, it normally cuts quite decisively and quickly. So I think you know, that uh, decline in bond yields probably will be associated with uh, yeah, a, a rapid turnaround in expectations around the Fed. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, the next uh, section, shall we talk about asset market performance, which we won't dwell on too much here. We need you to uh, need you to, uh, to read those through. But uh, obviously one of the big themes uh, developing and certainly over the last few months with a bit of a buyer's strike in treasuries um, has been, you know, the concern about rising deficits and, and debt. Um, so, uh, Stefan, do you want to sort of impart some of your views here, which are obviously very interesting? Yes, I think one key issue that we will face in um, in the U.S. and in many other countries is, is uh, this whole issue, what's going to happen to these very large public debts that we have uh, uh, that uh, that that economies have accumulated, and we can see there on um, in, uh, in graph uh, graph ten here, uh, government debt as a share of U.S. GDP. These are very very large number. As I think, what has changed in the last uh, in the last twenty years or so is that debts tend to increase in peacetime. Historically, of course, debts increase in war times as government had exceptional expenditures. Um, you know, for defense, but now we've seen a massive increase in, in debts uh, uh, in many OECD countries in the last in the last twenty years. Actually, it was rather than so, if you think of some countries in Europe, such as such as Italy, and and and, and could, could countries get rid of these uh, of these uh, of these large uh, debts at the Jackson Hole conference this year? Barry Eichengreen and the eminent Berkeley uh, financial historian presented a paper where he discussed whether this was was possible. And if you look historically, as he noted, there have been three ways in which governments have reduced public debts. One of them has been by running years of surpluses. Now, that was possi- possible in the past, uh, but not anymore. Essentially, politically, it's impossible for countries who to run large surpluses for decades to pay back the public debt. The other possibility is to use financial repression that is said to have legal limits on interest rates that are relatively low. So interest rates are low, inflation is relatively high, and you can sort of suppress the, uh, so you can lower artificially the cost of borrowing and then and then that way resolve the fiscal problem. Um, and that's not really possible anymore. We have now liberalized financial markets, um, it's difficult for countries to do their own thing, so to speak, in, in in this area. So this possibility of financial repression and legal restrictions and so on that seems seems remote. And finally, of course, one can one can reduce public debt by by uh, by running a high inflation, but it's unexpected inflation, yeah, that matters. And there's sort of two problems with that. First of all, financial market participants, uh, of course, there are worrying every day about whether inflation might be picking up. And they will not be fooled the way they were in the 1970s. They will realize immediately, even before inflation picks up, that inflation is picking up and we'll see bond yields then rise immediately, sort of slowing slowing the economy. 
So I don't think it's possible to fool the markets. And the second problem is, of course, that to, it's very hard to generate a burst in inflation. Um, it takes some time, normally, for inflation to rise. Um, so it seems unlikely that uh, sort of a, we can solve these problems with inflation. And um, Professor Eiking then concluded that it looks like these debts will be here for a, for a very long time and will, will shape developments in politics and more importantly also shape developments in financial markets so we're looking for a long-term problem yeah it's absolutely fascinating that um uh mccarthy lost his position as speaker of the house basically because he did a deal with the democrats on the fiscal deficit and uh uh clearly it's uh it's a it's a rising issue in the united states um around sort of deficits particularly with the republic Republican Party, although ironically, Trump at the moment is probably the most popular uh, as the popular incumbent for the for the Republicans. Uh, but um, um, and he didn't necessarily help on the on that side. But um, it is a very interesting, very fascinating debate, and I suspect it also will have long term implications for um, uh, the dollar because in this sort of environment. The dollar's attractiveness certainly diminishes, um, and that's you know a theme that uh, we have certainly started to talk about at EFG over the last sort of twelve months or so. But I think it's something that's going to continue to get the spotlight over the coming uh, over the coming months, quarters, and years. Um, I guess um, Daniel, the the other sort of key question is the you know who is going to buy these treasuries. Um, given that you know foreign investors own a significant part of um, U.S. Treasuries, and we have a great chart, chart twelve, uh, showing who owns them, um, and obviously the Federal Reserve has been a big buyer over the course of the last you know decade. Um, but who is going to who is going to come in to uh, to buy these Treasuries? Yeah, you know it's, it's a really good point. Yeah, they say they can. You can teach a parrot to become an economist just by teaching it the two words, supply and demand. And I think, uh, yeah, that's very <laughs> true with regards to the treasury market at the moment. So we know the Fed's shrinking its balance sheet to be an important source of demand there. And what's actually been part of a multi-year trend is that foreign, foreigners have been selling treasuries as well. And that's probably driven by Japan and China. Um, it has leveled out a bit over the past few months, but... Um, it looks like the you know the numbers are are shrinking in terms of foreign holdings. I think for China, yeah, it's part of them wanting to diversify their foreign exchange exposure. We did see for very many years the recycling of the Chinese trade balance into U.S. Treasuries, and I think you know we can no longer guarantee that. And I think China as well looking to diversify some of its risk. Uh, you know, it's see what's happened in Russia with the sanctions and how that's really made it very difficult for Russia to operate internationally. And I think China just wants to hedge its risks a little bit there. So it's a very interesting in terms of um, the shifting sounds there of, uh, of demand. Yeah, absolutely. So moving to the, to the UK, uh, it's on page uh, six of the insights. And um, the perennial questions Silly people living in the UK is always always about house pricing, but certainly on a certainly on recently on my travels, a lot more people are asking: Is it time to buy UK housing yet? Um, 
So, Joaquin, do you want to, as a recent acquirer of, of real estate, obviously uh, for personal reasons rather than investing reasons, but um, um, do you want to sort of give us a, an overview of the real estate market in the UK? Yeah, of course. So, um, house prices in the UK have, have recently declined by around 5% over, over the last 12 months. And this, um, this comes... Um, uh, as, as a combination, let's say, of uh, maybe declining real wages in the UK, rising mortgage rates, low supply of of, of, of residential units, all of these have, have affected prices over, over the last year. Um, and we know that house prices here are followed very closely uh, as, a, as a general barometer of the health of the, of the UK economy, um, as, a, as a perception of, of the value of wealth, of course, as a reserve of value as an investment, uh, but also you know, the, the impact on consumer confidence and, and consumer spending as a, as a whole. So it's not surprising to, to, to hear that now more pri- people are starting to look into uh, having reached uh, the, the bottom of, of prices yet. And probably probably the answer is no. So we were talking with, with Paul before um, uh, earlier today about, about this and, and that history doesn't repeat itself, but it, it does rhyme as it's always, it's always said. And um, here we've compared on, on chart 14, we've compared the current state of, of house prices in the UK with previous, uh, with the declines from previous peaks. Uh, and normally it takes between 18 months to three years to actually get to that, uh, uh, to that bottom. And that has previously happened in, in the late 80s and in 2007, um, where the declines reach close to 20% um, of the, from, from, the, from the peak. Um, so I would, I would expect that after that, uh, given that what 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 happened in in the past, that they actually stay there for for quite a for quite a long time, and it took between six to eight years to actually get back into into, into nominal terms, uh, back up. Um, I would expect that, that we will still have a, a a little bit more to go in terms of the 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 the, the pain in the UK housing market yet. We still need to see. Uh, a control level of, of inflation. We need to see mortgage rates stabilizing a little bit more. Um, we need to see an increase in, in real wages um, uh, to to actually see this, this this stuff coming back and to to see investors coming back into into the market. So uh, it's uh, it's a good indicator of how complicated the situation in the UK economy currently is um, and how probably. Until we see a, um, a reversal in, in, in mortgage rates and, and inflation as a whole, um, probably we still have a bit more to of, of pain to go. Yeah, that's a very good chart. I love uh, chart fourteen because it just clearly shows that we've got probably another, you know, eighteen months or so of of pain, but the recovery is not as fast as as you know one would have thought, um, and it will take. You know, a few more years. So, I guess the message would be that to reach bottom, there'll probably be another twelve to eighteen months, at least twelve to eighteen months away. Uh, but um, you don't need to rush in because the recovery will will take time as well. So, I think that's a a very interesting um, analysis. Um, so, moving then on to Europe and um, Stefan, the German dilemma. Yes, Germany is in a bit of a, uh, a bit of a pickle. The German growth model has been very export oriented. Uh, 
think particularly exports to China, which of course now in recent years have been a problem. Um, and Germany is facing some very large uh, domestic uh, problems uh, at all. For instance, defense spending will have to increase a lot in the years to come. It's uh, we have the whole issue of decarbonization of the economy, which will require very, very serious investment. And finally, also we have the whole issue of digitalization. I mean, the German economy is not very digital. And you can see it in all, all so many ways. Uh, I mean, most most, uh, most obviously, for someone in the financial sector, we see it in a, for people actually pay with cash and not very cyber bank cards and credit cards and so on and so forth. So Germany has been sort of lagging behind. Now, people are talking um, about Germany as potentially the, the sick man of Europe. We have to see now how the German political sphere will react to the, the drastic changes uh, in the environment. Um, I mean, most obviously, just think about what has happened with Russia and Ukraine and so on. Um, the German growth model be focused on on, on cheap Russian gas is entirely is entirely out, uh, outdated. So we have lots of problems. Uh, there are there will be lots of problems that Germans have to have to deal with, and we have to see sort of how this works its way and itself out. These are not uh, simple things that can be uh, that can be fixed. One has a little bit the sense that the Germany is sort of a bit too. Um, Conservative, just in general, in many ways, and 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 uh, the global economy, I think, is becoming much more dynamic yeah, than it was, let's say, thirty or forty years ago, when the German export growth model was uh, was uh, came into being, and so the challenges are enormous. Absolutely. Now, so Paul, we have this chart showing the eurozone trade balance with China. Yes, which uh, I guess is is also because. Kind of, symptomatic of some of the challenges that Europe faces. Um, mm. But uh, China looks like it's very linked to Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a comment by the um, EU ambassador to to, uh, to China who'd said that uh, the Eurozone trade balance with China, a 300 billion euro deficit, was the, uh, the highest in the history of mankind. I mean... I thought, is this man just prone to exaggeration? And but I looked at all of the other ones that I could find, you know, big trade deficits, say between the US and Japan in the sort of nineteen eighties and nineties. I think he's right. I mean, I don't think we've ever had anything this big. I mean, it is a massive trade deficit. And yeah, you know, one aspect of that is, you know, Germany used to be a great exporter to China in particular, and now, you know, that's faded away to some extent. I mean, not entirely. And China is a big exporter of cars to Europe. So it is a big, big problem. Yeah, certainly. And I guess one of the things that, you know, um, we'll maybe cover a bit later on is if indeed China, uh, you know, does slow down, you know, as a uh, as an economy and, and we know that Chinese inflation has been hugely subdued. I think the case for China to export deflation around the world by lowering prices or even devaluating their currency is become bigger than ever. It has become bigger than ever. And then, you know, we're back to, well, it's the same again, you know, pre-GFC, pre-COVID and pre-financial crisis, you know, China was a, a big deflationary, deflationary influence for the rest of the world. 
But I mean, I think that the chart we've got on Eurozone and US inflation expectations, I think is also interesting because no longer is the Eurozone sort of considered to be a lower inflation environment than the US. And I think that's a, that's the other big change in terms of, you know, the 3D problem that Stefan talked about, the trade deficit and lack of German export strength, and then this, you know, issue about long-term inflation expectations. What did Stefan say? Eurozone's in a bit of a pickle, or Germany's in a bit of a pickle. A good description. So, um, maybe a, a slightly different pickle, or the Swiss version. Uh, but uh, Luigi, um obviously the SMB's kind of hawkish pause, but uh, certainly with strong evidence that the Swiss economy is indeed losing momentum. Yes, of course, and that uh, most likely reflects uh, what's going on in, in the Eurozone and in China, which are two areas with which uh, Swiss uh, exporters have traded a lot over the last uh, decade and have benefited, of course, from the uh, you know improvement in, in the European and German economy in particular. So it is far from, surprise, from surprising that now that these two economies are kind of themselves with the momentum, so is the Swiss economy. And equally unsurprising is that uh, eventually the Swiss National Bank took notice of the change economic outlook and uh, so decided to uh, stop its tightening cycle possibly earlier than most expected and uh, kept rates on change already in September as opposed to expectations of a final 25 basis point rate hike. And uh, now it looks set to stay uh, say on hold for, for some time and possibly I uh, look for reducing rates uh, sometime next year. No, absolutely fascinating. And um, I guess thoughts around the Swiss franc in that kind of environment obviously has come off. So I guess the dollar more recently, but uh, what's your what's your thoughts around that particular narrative? Um, will the currency start to finally weaken? Well, uh, that would be a big change compared to the last uh, uh, five or six decades. Actually, the Swiss franc has been uh, strengthening on a trend basis since the end of Bretton Woods in the early 70s. And uh, the reason why that has happened is that uh, Switzerland is a, a stable economy from all perspective you can look at it. And uh, uh, the Swiss National Bank has been delivering uh, a low and stable inflation over the years, and that eventually uh, supports uh, the, the currency uh, over the longer run. And uh, for the time being, there's no reason to expect that to change in any meaningful way. And testimony of that, even during the, the surge in inflation in the US and, and the euro area in the last uh, couple of years, inflation in Switzerland peaked at 3.6%, which is uh, like uh, less than half what was the peak in the US and in the eurozone. So, uh, I would expect uh, the Swiss franc to stay strong as a currency, which of course doesn't mean that it will appreciate every day, but particularly when compared to the euro and other, say, complications that the euro economy seems to be facing for the next few years, it would seem natural to expect this, the Swiss franc to remain strong. So safe haven status um, is uh, as kept true to his word in terms of inflation, stability, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it certainly comes across in all the charts that we have 
uh, there on on page uh, on page eight. So moving to possibly a period of greater instabilities in Asia, uh, and um, I want to do a d- deeper dive on on the graph uh, twenty four, which is on um, on page nine, which uh, which um, which looks at sort of Asia private sector credit growth and uh, and China in particular. So uh, maybe Sam, do you want to make a few comments there? Sure. So I think it's a really interesting chart. And the um, the insight kind of makes the point that a lot of China's economic expansion in recent years has been fueled by this credit growth. And Indonesia is then an interesting example to look at because genuinely, generally, sorry, we've seen um, private sector, when it, private sector debt, when it rises above 100% and by an amount more than 30 percentage points over five years, that tends to end badly either in a slowdown or in a financial crisis. And that's what we're seeing in China now. So the economic expansion in recent years has been fueled by higher debt in the property sector. And we're now seeing the property sector really struggling. And this is having impact in other areas in the economy. So you've got continued debt woes for developers weighing on households' willingness to pre-purchase apartments. You have um, real estate accounting for around 70% of household wealth in China which is really weighing on sentiment, and then you're seeing spending down and the economy generally slowing. Whereas in India, on the same chart, you can see that since around 2007, it's hovered around the 100% level um, private sector credit as a percentage of GDP, but it hasn't had that same rapid expansion. And growth in India generally has actually been driven by um, private consumption. So around 60% of GDP growth over the last two fiscal years came from private consumption. The services sector looks incredibly strong this year. Consumer sentiment's really strong. And then you also have, um, just on the real real estate side in China, you have the demographic um, problem, which is weighing on on China. And India actually overtook China as the most populous country last year. So you have that dynamic in play as well, where India definitely looks set to outperform China in terms of GDP growth over the next years. So um, the inveritable bull is the Martin Wolf bull, uh, who uh, there's a very interesting comment there. Um, do yeah. we think real, or is that still a pipe dream? No, 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 no. It's, a, it's an interesting, it's an, an interesting one, isn't it? That sort of if if China went to the same per capita income as Portugal, then China would be bigger than all of the Western economies. So. And that puts Western power in an interesting sort of perspective, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, a bull on China. Is that sort of unrealistic? No, I mean, to say, you know, you, you'll be as well. I tried it out on our Portuguese friends the other day. Sort of China could be as wealthy as you. And they said, well, we're actually quite poor. I said, oh, okay, so it's maybe achievable. <laughs> so it is new. Yeah. But- yeah, no, it's very interesting. But just you know, if you kind of balance that off with with credit growth, you know, there's you know, there clearly needs to be a much greater focus on you know, excess savings in there. Maybe that can stave off the 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 the, the credit situation. But uh, you know, there needs to be an adjustment uh, clearly. Um, and certainly, China. I think just note Daniel's note from a from a couple of months ago, uh, which was. Particularly interesting around some of the shorter term issues that China that China faces. Yeah. Um, so moving right across the rest of the world, through the throughout the world, into Latin America now, uh, Joaquin. And I know you're 
own country, Uruguay is kind of up there as one of the most success- successful countries in, in Latin America. It's Singapore of Latin America. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you by the level of taxation in the country is not Singapore. Uh, but <laughs> definitely it has... Um, it has done well in, the, in terms to uh, to increase the, the, the gross national income uh, measured um, against the US, let's say, as, as, a, as a standard measure here, uh, in in a way to avoid that uh, middle income trap that a lot of countries in, in the emerging world have have faced. Like for example, um, lots of the of the countries in in the region, including uh, Brazil and Mexico, two of the the largest economies there. Um, have kind of stagnated uh, between 2000 and and 2022, and so um, yeah, despite let's say Uruguay remains a, a very small uh, economy for for investors, but there's been a lot of hype around Brazil recently, and we we have been talking quite a lot about them in 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 our notes, um, and the, the fact as well that they they're going to be having the, the the G20 presidency later later this year. Uh, there's a lot of uh, potential, let's say, to 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 develop Brazil as, as one of the uh, key developers of sustainable uh, policies. Um, however, we we think that some of these issues that they faced in the past to try to um, extend some of these reforms over time and try to actually improve conditions for for the population and that all of this gross national income continues to grow has, has kind of hit a wall in, 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 in certain ways in, in Brazil. So we have to be mindful of some of these this problems that the country is uh, is facing. Um, but still, it's one of the, the, the success stories in opposition to some of the other ones in, in, in the region. Yeah, I just know some very interesting charts of uh, index of economic freedoms and indeed the size of the informal economy. I think the one that surprised me most was Panama. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's that's right. Uh, but I think economic freedom depends on how how it is defined in in, in some of these things, and um, it's uh, uh, an informal way of, of how we, we we count, let's say, the informal economy in some of these these places. Uh, it just shows that the the region remains with with a lot of headwinds um, for 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 growth and development. There could be a lot of good opportunities for investors, but the distribution of income there and the the, the the reach of some of these policies to to the part of the population that needs it remains a, a, a key problem there, given that that that, that huge size of the, the informal economy. So um, now moving on to the last slide and our special focus. Obviously, we had the G twenty Delhi summit, um, and and um, the big question we ask is: Is it fit for purpose? Just as Brazil takes over. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. We've got we've got Martin Wolf again there. I must have been I must have been in a favourable sort of um, mood as far as Martin Wolf was concerned. If the G20 didn't exist, we we would have to invent it, is what he said. But then at the same time, Gordon Brown, who um, uh, um, headed the G20 when the UK had a presidency in two thousand and nine saved the world as a result of the G20 initiative, you know, with a coordinated sort of program of uh, support um, for the Western economy. And and he was the one who sort of questioned whether it was fit for purpose. You know, it's just really not the right grouping any longer. The world has become sort of 
less globalized. It's globalization light. It's become more mercantilist. It's not really the sort of venue to discuss these problems. And then at the same time, we're thinking about making it bigger. And uh, the uh, Delhi G20 summit, um, let's talk about extending its membership. Well, it is, membership has been extended. And it, it, I don't know how formal it is yet. It's agreed that the African Union will come into the G20. That will make it G21. But I, I, I don't think that's a very good description. I come up with the idea of a G100. Because if you, if you say that the EU is represented with 27 states, but three are already in the G7, the African Union has 55 members. And if you add it up and take out all of the sort of, you know, the double counting, you get to the G100. And I thought, I, G100 has a certain ring, I think. And every time I thought G1, it, it reminded me of Haircut 100, the pop band. And I thought that could be its new theme tune. And of course, the most popular song of Haircut 100 is Fantastic Day. And I can, Mose, I can just see you singing it in your head. And so we need a relaunch. It's going to be the G100 with Haircut 100 theme tune, Fantastic Day. And it's all going to be great from then on, or, or maybe not. Because the, 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 other, the other point that I made was actually... All these economies, which we, we think are great economies, Switzerland, of course, Singapore, Taiwan, they don't have any representation in the G20 or the G21 or, the, or indeed the G100. They're not in there. So, I mean, we don't include a lot of the sort of very, you know, dynamic economies that we spend a lot of time talking about. So I tend to come back to the sort of Gordon Brown point that it maybe is not fit for purpose. And then, of course, you've got Ian Bremmer with his G0, and I know it's influential with a lot of people, the G0 newsletter. You know, we live in a Hobbesian world where everyone's out for themselves and no one will cooperate, and it's just, you know, me first and sort of I'm not, you know, Trumpian G0 sort of world. Um, so lots of problems. But I think Brazil is interesting. I mean... Uh, Joaquin can probably say a bit more about it, but if you think that the world's big problem now is climate change and Brazil is in a great position with its, you know, very low carbon emissions and, you know, sustainable power and so on, maybe, maybe it can do something very positive for the world under its presidency, which starts in just a few weeks' time, November, I believe it's Joaquim's looking at me in a very sort of sceptical manner. Brazil might lead the world, I said, and he's thinking, mm, Paul, are you feeling okay? They cannot, they cannot clear. Oscar, at least Bolsonaro's not there now. Well, exactly. True. They're, they're trying to lead Mercosur as well, and they're failing with, with four countries, so let's keep it with that. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I'll temper my enthusiasm for the time being. <laughs> I think it's a very, very good debate. And um, now I think the G100 basically becomes United Nations, I guess, does. Um, in some respects. So it doesn't really solve much. Um, but yeah, certainly I think a big challenge as to whether this is actually any point at the moment. I think you raised some good points about G0 uh, as well. So uh, a very interesting, very, very interesting uh, piece. So with that, we will wrap up. 
again, gentlemen, thank you very much for your inputs. Uh, always interesting and take us a little bit more deeper into the narratives. Uh, so with that, we'll stop there. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, if you have any questions for me or for the team, please let us know. Thank you and have a great day.